0: From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Marden are just moments away to discuss fact, fiction, and flying saucers the truth behind the misinformation, distortion, and derision by debunkers, government agencies, and conspiracy con men. Uh, my good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is with me in studio. We'll get to him in just a moment. First, uh, let me introduce the band. On the Gibson Flying V guitar, my fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson, is on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. And on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, Albert Vinzel. Hello, Albert. How are you? Albert is uh, here running our HOA, our Hangout on Air. And if you want to watch this radio transmission streamed live on YouTube, here's what you do. You go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Go to the top or near the top of the Twitter feed. Find the tweet containing the link to the HOA. Click, and voila. Abracadabra, presto, chango. Uh You'll see me here in studio. And uh, Victor and Albert, and occasionally we even have uh, some guests up on uh, webcam as well. Uh, now it is time, very quickly, for a little segment we like to call What's in the Box, where my story produ- producer, occasional remote viewer, Albert Venzel, attempts to transcend time and space and uh, determine the contents of this beautiful vintage humidor sitting on our desk here. So, uh, Albert, I know you've been concentrating, you've been following the remote viewing protocols. What is in the box, Albert.
1: All right, I I'm gonna guess the
0: jogging. I guess jogging or someone jogging, like red,
1: something heart healthy.
0: Something heart healthy. Some someone jogging in the it's a it's a box, Albert. I'm not I'm not following. What do you mean someone jogging?
2: Um, maybe maybe somehow related to jogging, like a squeeze ball something or something related like
0: a, to jogging. Oh, I see. A timer okay, timer
2: or something like that. A pedometer or something? I
0: got you. Okay. We're just going to let that sit there. We'll reveal a little bit later in the program. And incidentally, if uh, those of you listening at home uh, may be following us on uh, on our HOA, if you want to take a a stab at utilizing your remote viewing uh, skills, what's the hashtag we're using, Albert? TCS remote. All right. Hashtag TCS, as in The Conspiracy Show. Hashtag TCS remote. And uh, you can tweet us and, uh, again... Determine what's in the box, and we'll do the reveal a little bit later in the program. All right, let me crib from the, uh, the back here of fact fiction and flying saucers. It's no secret that the mainstream media has misinformed us for years about UFO studies conducted by highly regarded scientists at the finest universities in the country. The U.S. government has covered up the alien presence through misinformation, distortion, obfuscation, and ridicule. Some prominent politically connected scientists and professional writers have even participated in the cover-up. In fact, fiction and flying saucers, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin examine the wealth of archival documents that clearly demonstrate this cooperative disinformation effort and refute the false claims made by these professional scoffers. Friedman and Martin set the record straight. ...by examining politically motivated misinformation and presenting the compelling evidence that separates fact from fiction. Before we get to uh, Stanton and Kathleen, first let me welcome Victor Vigiani back to the program. Victor is the Executive Director of Zeland Communications News Network, and the website is zelandcommunications.blogspot.ca. Victor, hello, how are you?
2: Just great to be with you, just fine, thanks. Do you know
0: what's in the box? A pedometer or a can of beans or something? That's Uh, a a tough one. All right. We'll get to that a little bit later. Stan Friedman is a nuclear physicist who worked on a wide variety of advanced classified nuclear systems for major industrial companies. He began the civilian investigation of the Roswell incident, wrote Flying Saucers and Science and Top Secret, Magic, and co-authored Crash at Corona, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, and Science Was Wrong. He's appeared on hundreds of radio and TV programs. He resides in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Stanton Friedman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
3: I'm delighted to be
1: here.
0: And we are delighted to have you. Kathleen Martin is a best-selling author, award-winning UFO researcher and lecturer, and a frequent guest on radio programs. Her expert testimony has been featured on the History, Discovery, National Geographic, Destination America channels. She is co-authored of uh, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, Science Was Wrong, and the Alien Abduction Files. She resides near Orlando, Florida. Kathleen, welcome to you.
4: Thanks. It's great to be with you tonight.
0: Excellent. All right. Uh, first of all, let me, uh, let me both ask you, um, putting together this book. Now, this is, you two have collaborated, uh, um, on a number of projects together. What is it, uh, you know, what, what makes for a good co author? I mean, what, why did you find Kathleen to be sort of, uh, your dance partner, uh, Stanton? And Kathleen, the same for you. Uh, why, why Stanton?
3: Well, uh, pretty straightforward, actually. We'd met. I had gotten involved in the Betty and Barney Hill story, uh, a television program, television station in Pittsburgh. had told I was living in Pittsburgh at the time and had begun my, my public career, if you will, by an appearance on KDKA, uh, which has a wide audience, the biggest station in town. And I was on a show, believe it or not, called Contact, several times, and uh, they apparently liked what I presented. There was a group called uh, UFO Research Institute there, and I was a member of that group. And uh, they told me, they called me to let me know that Betty and Barney Hill were coming to town. I'd read the book, The Interrupted Journey, by John Fuller, and I read the Look Magazine articles and was very intrigued. That was the first abduction case that got any publicity, And so I was intrigued, especially by the star map, and wound up being involved in trying to figure out what that means. Anyway, uh, they not only told me that Betty and Barney were coming to town and were going to be on a particular program, but they told me where they were staying, which is very unusual, as I'm sure you're aware. And uh, I contacted them. We had dinner together. So it gave me a person-to-person chance to evaluate them, see whether they were enlarging upon what was in the book. Uh, And I was very favorably impressed. Well, Kathy, which you haven't mentioned, is uh, Betty's niece. right? And it was because of that connection that we met and we saw each other at conferences, MUFON conferences and stuff. And we found, uh, I shouldn't say this, but I will, we're both Leos. We have an approach toward, let's get the facts straight uh, before putting our mouths in gear and our pens in, in hand, so to speak. And we found that we worked extremely well together. So, you know, we started appearing together at conferences. We heard each other speak and so forth. And she asked me... Uh, if I wanted to do something uh, uncaptured uh, about the star map, and I did, I very much wanted to do that. And so the the uh, science was wrong. Followed because we both had a concern about getting the facts straight. In, in ufology, there's too darn much research by proclamation rather than investigation. We believe in going to the archives and looking at the documents and digging out the facts instead of proclaiming, well, it's probably like this or like that. And we see a lot of that in ufology and in every field. People are too lazy, for one thing. It's hard work. uh, And it costs some money, too, uh, traveling. I live on the East Coast. Kathy lives uh, not far from uh, Orlando. And the presidential archives are some distance from there, <laughs> and the national archives are some distance. So, I've had—I will admit—some research grants from the Fund for UFO Research and from uh, Robert Bigelow. Uh, those really come in handy because there isn't a lot of money available to cover costs.
0: No, that's true. How about you? For you, Kathleen.
4: Well, I first asked Stanton to work with me on captured because he was the scientist who was able to find other scientists who were willing to evaluate Marjorie Fish's uh, work on Betty's star map. Um, She had uh, been able to identify the stars on Betty's map, and uh, Stanton had promoted that uh, work. He had published on it, and so I wanted a co-author, uh, who would be willing to work, uh, write a couple of chapters on the star map, and he said that he would be willing to do so. Uh, that gave me the opportunity to get to know Stanton as a person, and uh, we began to discuss writing a second book together, Science Was Wrong, in which each of us would write uh, half of the book. We each wrote seven chapters. We uh, The qualities that Stanton has that I like uh, are that he is a meticulous researcher. He doesn't embellish his facts. He uh, is personable. He has a great sense of humor, so it can become rather tense writing a book, but it's great that we can laugh together as we're doing it. So I, I really enjoy that part of it. He's done a great deal of research in archival collections and it interests me greatly. Uh, I had to travel to uh, uh, some archival collections myself and he joined me uh, during one of those trips so we had the opportunity to do our research together as well. Uh, When I went alone, I uh, shared my files with him, I had photographed or photocopied. Uh, many, many files, probably up to a 1,000 pages just for this book alone. And uh, he had stacks of archival documents as well that he was willing to send to me and give to me. So we found that we work very well together. Uh, we have similar writing styles. We enjoy writing what could be a boring history book Uh, and making it into a very exciting, easy-to-read book that will be entertaining and keep people's attention.
0: That's something
4: that we seem to do well together.
0: You certainly do. Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers, the latest. Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, Victor Vigiani in studio. When we come back, one of the things that jumped out at me immediately in this book is... uh, you know, people are always demanding uh, evidence and so forth. Never mind the documents. What about hard evidence? And you, you, you point out there are over 5,000 cases where physical, um, physical evidence actually ha- has been has been recovered. And uh, we'll talk about that and much more when we come back. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin on the other side here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back just a programming note next week. Scott Bennett on uh, WikiLeaks. And Marty Leeds on Math Magic. Next week on the Conspiracy Show. Right now, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin stay with us. Fact, fiction, and flying saucers. Victor Vigiani in studio. We'll get to him in a moment. But I, I just, I wanted to follow up on something I mentioned before the break. And this is just a real eye opener right out of the, it's right in the introduction here. Uh, you, you cite 5,000 reports collected of physical trace cases from 89 countries. 5,000 reports of physical trace cases. What are we talking about when we, when we say physical trace cases?
3: Well, the, the person who did uh, that work in particular is a man named Ted Phillips. He was a protege of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was the Air Force, uh, an astronomer, chairman of the department at Northwestern University, and the Air Force scientific consultant of Project Blue Book for 19 years. And he uh, got Ted involved, and he's collected these reports, and it's helped that Allen let people know that uh, if you have such a report, uh, you know, let him know and talk to Ted, uh, contact him. And the thing is, they come from 80 countries. Um, and we're talking about people who are close to a saucer on the ground, uh, either sitting on the ground or just above the ground. And some of the physical traces that are found include small footprints, burn circles, burn rings, landing gear marks, that sort of thing and quite frankly after you read your first two hundred such cases it's dull same thing is happening all over the world uh... same reports ted has visited hundreds of these cases incidentally these sites and so uh, people think or, or the nasty noisy negativists as i like to call them when i'm being polite <laughs> uh... think that uh, we only have lights in the sky seen from a long ways away and who knows what they are not at all Many of these cases are, these objects are observed within a hundred feet. Uh, and, you know, there's no mistaking, uh, there's a long, big difference between a light in the sky thousands of feet away uh, and, and an object sitting on the ground just uh, uh, less than a hundred yards, less than a hundred feet from you. So you have to look at these cases to what's going on here. The objects are consistently the... Blended objects are less than a hundred feet in diameter. We're not talking about motherships here. There, we do have reports of motherships. I uh, remember one case uh, that civil engineer was able to triangulate by talking to enough witnesses. The object was between six tenths and one mile long. These aren't the things that are seen on or near the ground. And people who say that sounds weird. Remember that the United States has aircraft carriers, huge ships that can op- nuclear-powered ones that can operate for 18 years without refueling. They carry about 75 small airplanes which can operate for you know maybe up to two hours on a good day uh, before they need to be refueled. So we have a mothership, if you will, uh, and a little Earth excursion module, <laughs> if you, I, I'd like to call them that. So that, that's a very good place to start. Also, because a lot of these cases involve radar and visual, ground radar, airborne radar. Uh, you can't say there's nothing there.
0: Right. Right. The Stevenville lights is a great example where you have, you know, you have radar, you have uh, what do they call those paint skins, right? Yeah. Uh, let's yeah. get let's get uh, Victor Vigiani in here, Victor. How are you doing, Stanton?
3: Hi. Good yeah,
0: good
2: to good to talk again. Uh, I just want to bring up a point regarding um, I guess two respected uh, groups that have really um, taken a perspective on this. N- number one is, is Mufon. Um, there's a lot of finger pointing going on now uh, towards mufon to become more engaged with uh, with stating the facts as they know them are as they as they know they are in terms of um, uh, the political implications of these kinds of things, that Mifon is just not standing up and saying, "Let's look at the facts." And then there's another group of pilots. The pilots are seeing these things on a daily basis, and they're restricted in their perception and how they can even begin to talk about it. How do you see those two groups folding in to at least highlight some of the things that uh, you point out as disinformation or information itself?
3: Well. Uh- let's face it there have been literally thousands of pilot sightings the problem is pilots don't want to stick their necks out because they're afraid of losing their job and so there is an organization to which they can report their sighting without having their name be attached to it somebody has the rules if you will uh, the entry books and uh uh, Dr. Richard Haynes is the primary scientist of this group. He worked for NASA, was a scientist for NASA for many years, and he has written even written some books about uh, pilot sightings, say, in, um, in Southeast Asia and in other places. And, you know, uh, I fly a lot. I sure hope that the guy who's running that airplane knows what's going on around him and keeps his eyes open and avoids any problems with the... Uh, an unplanned interaction with another vehicle. Uh, So I tend to trust pilots, especially when you get a consistency of reports, the behavior, as well as the appearance. Uh, You know, we don't have, so far as we know, airplanes that can start, stop, move straight up, straight down, silently, make right angle turns, Without slowing down first and then speeding up after they make the turn, obviously such characteristics would be great for military systems. If we had them, we'd use them. And there have been a few wars in which we have used airplanes. Uh, And so, uh, I I think I I like pilot sightings. I'm not saying pilots are infallible. Uh, Nobody's infallible, but. You know, the question isn't, are all UFOs sightings alien spacecraft? The question is, are any? And our answer is yes, very definitely. They're manufactured vehicles that haven't been made on Earth. That means they come from someplace else. Very straightforward.
0: Let me work with Kathleen Martin in here. And, Kathleen, when when debunkers uh, talk about things like uh, UFOs, ETs, uh, they talk about, the you know, the, and, and we're talking about the nature of the cover-up here, they always say... How do you keep something like that secret? Well, there's a wonderful example in here that I've often used with people in, ta- in terms of, you know, how you keep a conspiracy quiet, and that has to do with things like the Manhattan Project. Can you just expand on that little, uh, a little bit? It's a wonderful example.
4: Yes. Uh, you have to realize that there are different levels of secrecy. And so uh, secret information can be um, made public. It can be declassified. Uh, top-secret information is sometimes declassified. But when you get to top-secret code word, that is the kind of information that you can get on a need-to-know basis only. And you have to have the clearance to go to that information if you need it. That's the kind of information that the public cannot gain access to. And those people who are involved in this, uh, who have the clearances, will not reveal that information. They don't tell their wives. Uh, Stanton Friedman, for example, had a Q, a Q clearance, uh, which was a secret clearance, when a top secret clearance, when he was a nuclear physicist. Uh, he had information in the programs that he was developing. He couldn't tell his wife. He didn't know who his wife would talk to. You can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. And you could get into a tremendous uh, problem for your country, for yourself, for your family. Not only that, but uh, it is against the law. Violators uh, could face up to uh, several years in prison uh, and uh, heavy fines as well. So the individuals who hold these secrets uh, have to prove that they are very, very loyal to their company, to their country, and that they uh, will not reveal the the secret information.
0: I think the example the, you cite in the book, uh, as it uh, refers to the Manhattan Project, is. some of the wives who were wondering what their husbands who were involved, the scientists in the Manhattan Project, were doing, and they were strongly urged to listen to the radio on August 6, 1945, and that's how they found out what their husbands had been up to.
4: That is correct. So, you know, another example of uh, the fact that secrets can and will be kept.
2: Actually, one of the things that I wanted to to, to try to shed some light on, uh, Kathleen, is this idea of the incredible amount of secrecy that you have discovered, both you and Standard, have clearly discovered that exists. Um, it means it's a monolith. I mean, let's look at it clearly for what it is. It's a monolith. So, I mean, there's always this point of view that it's self-evident to me anyway, is that if, if, if you've got this kind of information at, at your disposal um, and, and you say, well, it doesn't exist, well, why does the secrecy exist? They seem to be two separate entities, the the, the issue itself and the secrecy. Do you see what I'm getting at? Why all the secrecy if there's nothing there?
4: Absolutely. And and we have shown evidence that this information is being covered up, uh, not only uh, at the official level uh, through uh, Air Force Regulation 200-2, for example, that was a Project Blue Book uh, regulation. Uh, that stated that uh, the Project Blue Book would inform the news media on UFOs only when they had been positively identified as familiar objects. Uh, the names of the people involved, intercept and investigation procedures, were classified. And radar data was classified and could not be revealed. That was put into effect in 1953. Then in 1954, we had the Joint Army Navy Air Force Regulation Number 146. You might think of it as JNAP 146, where mm-hmm. it became a crime for the military for military personnel to discuss classified UFO reports with unauthorized persons. Violators faced up to two years in prison and fines up to ten thousand dollars. That was after the Robertson panel. Uh, made the decision to cover up the information that the government had discovered in their studies on UFOs w- would you yeah you know,
2: would you think Kathleen that the fact that there 's a secret around an issue does that not prove its uh, existence
3: well. Um, Let me just jump in there. If you want to see proof of this, just look at the 156 top-secret Umbra NSA, National Security Agency, UFO documents that got released way back in the 80s. You can read one sentence per page. Everything else is whited out. And now if you try to get a set of these, uh, gee whiz, we can't find the originals, they said. About the same time, we found uh, loads, does, many dozens of CIA top-secret Umbra UFO documents. They're all blocked out. And uh, people say, well, why don't you just scrape off the black? Well, you get a Xerox. You don't get the original documents. And, the, you know, anybody, I can guarantee you, will laugh at my lectures when I show these. Uh, because they're real. Uh, another example to indicate the magnitude of the problem is... Uh, Lockheed developed the stealth aircraft they spent 10 billion dollars over 10 years in secret we didn't know until they were finished the development so to speak and so, uh, and also I better add here I've had people challenging well Stan all that stuff's on the computer you can just sit at your desk and look at all those files what are you talking about here Well, you can't. Most of this stuff is not on the computer. It hasn't been scanned in the files. That I've been to twenty archives, and believe me, there's tons—and I mean that literally—of paper at these archives. You can't just sit at your computer because this stuff hasn't been scanned. So you got to you got to put some effort into it. And the government, the journalists haven't. And we better add in something else here. Back in the 70s, there was a thing called the Church Committee, Senator Frank Church, uh, United States Senate. They did an investigation about the media and the CIA. And much to everybody's surprise, it turned out there were hundreds of reporters that had a connection with the CIA.
0: Mockingbird. That was Operation Mockingbird, wasn't it?
3: Well, there were several different operations, and the, the thing is that uh, some of the publications, Life and Time, for example, were proud of the fact that their reporters were, uh, you know, helping out on national security. There were other uh, organizations where a connection was not able to be publicized at all, but it came as quite a shock to people. Uh, I had a contract uh, way back in the early 60s to look at Soviet work with regard to compact nuclear reactors for space vehicle applications. And the place that has um, tons of Soviet research uh, that's been translated is Patel Memorial Institute. And while I was visiting there for my contract, I correctly predicted that the Russians would be putting nuclear reactors in space. there were. I found comments from uh, scientists who'd been traveling, and somehow would make a report when they got back. What they heard at conferences, what Soviet scientists were saying.
0: Stanton, uh, excuse my uh, interruption. I got a. I got a break here. We'll uh, pick up on that point when we come back. Fact, fiction, and flying saucers. Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, Victor Vigiani in studio. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us.
4: Don't be afraid of
0: the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back. Uh, Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin are with us. Fact, fiction, and flying saucers, and Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio. We're we're tight for time. Um, I want to I want to get to. Um, Sort of another more overt way of sort of keeping a lid on on this whole arena, and that has to do with direct threats to UFO researchers. Kathleen, you had some interesting findings that, that you published in this book. I mean, I think you profiled uh, or, or mentioned eighteen specific cases of UFO researchers, and, and virtually all of them had been either threatened or had computers tampered with. Talk to me a little bit about that.
4: Yes, uh, I decided to do uh, in sort of an informal questionnaire that I sent out to a number of uh, UFO researchers who were fairly prominent and also to experiencers who had gone public with their stories and were speaking on the lecture circuit and uh, Almost everyone told me that they had been tampered with. They had either received veiled threats. uh, Some had received direct threats. Uh, Their computers might have had uh, the latest very good uh, antivirus software, and they were hacked and they were destroyed. Uh, There were all sorts of things. Sometimes people's homes were broken into, and uh, I was... Uh, surprised at this. The reason that I asked that is that I was speaking at a conference, and a man made some veiled threats towards me. And uh, so I wanted to know how widespread this was and found out that it really was quite widespread.
2: With that kind of resistance, uh, I guess, is to be expected to some degree. Um, you know, it's an understanding that we all have. But I'd like to kind of take it in a different direction um, the, the evolution of this whole concept of the uh, abduction phenomenon and going back into the 50s and, and what it was to begin uh, and how it was portrayed then and how it 's evolved since uh, since uh, you know bud 's work and even uh, since dr max's work how, how do you see the whole idea of these whatever they are these beings somehow tampering with uh, the human species and it's it seems to be quite direct and and uh... indisputable how, how do you see that phenomenon evolving and in its history affecting where we go
4: well when when bud was alive and was researching this he took a rather negative view upon all of it and and of course dr mack took a more positive view toward it but uh... Bud was focusing upon uh, the, what appeared to be a longitudinal genetic study where these beings were abducting humans and taking genetic material, uh, reproductive material, and uh, growing these uh, sort of hybrid beings in gestational tanks uh, until and somehow raising them Uh, somewhere on a craft or on a base, and uh, that is very distressing when you think that the humans have not consented to do this, have not consented to take part in any kind of experiment, and they are being experimented on like lab rats. That certainly is not something that uh, the government would want the general population to know about, because our military and no military uh, force on this world can retaliate. No one can protect experiencers from having these experiences. At the same time, the trend that we're heading in now is that many of these experiencers are stating that they had made a contract to participate in this uh, and uh, that all of this is an effort to raise human consciousness uh, and that it is for a positive purpose so that's sort of a shift in attitude although David Jacobs still contends that these uh, ETs are are doing it for the purpose of taking over the earth he believes and that they are already moving hybrids into apartments in New Jersey and perhaps Mm -hmm. elsewhere uh, but that is not consistent with the general trend, the information that I'm receiving. I'm MUFON's Director of Experience or Research, and I'm also on the Board of Directors of the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters. I've been doing this research for a very long time, and I'm finding these new trends very, very interesting. There are still individuals who... Uh, claiming that they are having highly negative experiences uh, and and being mistreated. But it seems to be a much smaller percentage of individuals than it has been in the past, whereas others are moving toward this consciousness-raising trend.
0: All right. Well, uh, this is a short segment. We'll take a time. I'll come back, and um, we'll get into... Uh, Some of the debunkers, the great debunkers that you both tackle in Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers, people like Dr. Howard Menzel and Philip J. Klass. We'll do that when we come back. We'll also grab a call or two, if time permits. Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network in studio. Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin on the phone. Again, Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers. More on The Conspiracy Show right after this. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, we'll get back to uh, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, in just one second. I just uh, want to wrap up uh, what's in the box. And uh, a number of people have uh, tweeted using the hashtag Remote, and uh, someone thought it was a pyramid-shaped yellow or gold uh, object. Someone mentioned a silver chain bracelet, uh, a Sidney Crosby hockey card, uh, no one's really close, although the, the silver object is, the silver chain bracelet is somewhat close. Albert, let's reveal what's in the box. Shall we? And then we'll move on. Okay, open that up. And there we go. It's a harmonica or a mouth organ. Alright nobody really close uh this week but uh, we'll try that again next week time permitting what's in the box all right uh, stanton friedman kathleen martin fact fiction and flying saucers let's grab a quick call uh dave has been patient he's been waiting from new jersey dave good evening welcome
1: good evening it's a pleasure to speak with you again thank you so much
0: all right uh, you stanton- called in last week and you you were anxious to speak with stanton this week so uh, you've got the floor very quickly your question
1: well, no, first, Dr. Freeman, I just want to tell you what an honor it is to finally speak with you. I've been following your work for 30 years. Um, I had a question regarding some information I discovered called the Mark IV control display system, a vehicle that um, from July 1960, uh, Lear Corporation was developing uh, for the U.S. Air Force, ARDC, and WADD. Only thing I was ever able to find is I cross referenced from the same month of July 1960 in a magazine called Aviation Week and State Technology. It also speaks and has pictures about this Mark IV vehicle that it was in production from another company called AVCO. A-V-C-O. Yeah. Um, I just was wondering was that something that went black or was never developed or was it part of the beginning of the, the dinosaur project?
3: I don't think it was part of the Dinosaur Project. What what we're talking about here, the, the key thing that you uh, sent me, the key comment was that this system had four nuclear weapons, uh, five nuclear weapons on board. Correct. And that there were facilities so that four guys could stay in space for, well, a month, 30 days, something like that. Is that is correct. And, uh, we need a little historical context here. When the Russians and the United States were going at each other in the beginning of the Cold War, uh, as nuclear weapons were developed and the United States got caught a little bit short, the Russians were much faster at jumping on the nuclear bandwagon than anybody expected them to be. The head of the program, General, uh, the general who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, thought in 1948 it would take the Russians eight years before they exploded their first nuclear weapon. So what do we have to worry about? Besides, they don't even have a means for reaching us. Well, it took them only a year after that. 1949 was the first uh, Soviet nuclear weapon. And they developed ICBMs, and people forget. The reason we went to the moon was to show that we're as good as the Russians because... They had the first satellite. They had the first flight around the moon. They had the first animal in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first to see the other side of the moon. Uh, we were getting creamed, and so the you know the program, the, the lunar of uh, the Apollo program was was set up. Uh, but along the way, there were negotiations going on, as they both recognized that. Uh, mutually assured destruction didn't seem a, a great way for the world to proceed you hit me, I'll hit you back and we'll both get destroyed That's that doesn't make sense for any government and I, I should mention that there was this enormous increase in the power of the nuclear weapons the first one released the energy of about 16,000 tons of dynamite that's in 1945 the first H-bomb in 1952 released the energy of 10 million tons of dynamite and the Russians set up one set off one uh, a few years later that released the energy of 57 million tons of dynamite one stinking weapon and i use that term advisedly oh,
0: yeah. uh, how, does, how does how does this i don't like nuclear weapons so how does that Mark IV program that the Dave in New Jersey mentioned, how does that fit into... Well,
3: because there was an agreement reached, that program uh, planned to have nuclear weapons in space with a crew ready to release one on the other guy if the need arose. Because how could you do anything about a guy going around the planet with nuclear weapons on board and sitting
0: just... Waiting right, like a, a doomsday funding. plan. Plan. Doomsday Wasn't
1: that plan. in sixty-two or sixty-three that the U.S. and Russia came to that agreement? Though? Well, there was a preliminary
3: agreement, then there was a later agreement. This stretched out over a period of
1: time, but they
3: finally did agree on the concept of mutually assured destruction. Uh, and the system you were talking about, the funding did was not did not proceed. We're developing such systems, and systems, and it, it's one example. And there aren't many of countries on this planet trying to do what was sensible.
0: Okay, I want to work it back into the UFO field, if I could. Dave in New Jersey, thank you for that. I'm glad you had uh, a chance to speak with Stanton. Victor?
2: No, thank
1: you for letting me get back on the air, and thank you, Dr. Friedman. It's been All a real pleasure. Mr., please. Thank you. <laughs> the,
2: the idea of a, a cadre of people, Stanton and, and Kathleen, that you've identified very clearly that uh, seem to have made it their business to debunk everything to do with this issue, um, I don't want to necessarily get into personalities, but the, the whole idea of a group of people in, a, in an or, almost orchestrated way gets together to debunk this issue. How, how did you deal with that in, in, in this revelation in the book?
3: Well, one of the things was we found, much to my surprise, I discovered letters from Donald, Dr. Donald Howard Menzel to President John F. Kennedy saying that there's one area he may be of assistance to him. This is after Kennedy was elected in 1960. Uh, I've had a longer continuous association with the National Security Agency of anybody about 30 years, and when we are properly cleared to each other, uh, I can tell you more. Now, the kicker here is Menzel was a total debunker, everybody thought, about UFOs, and nobody knew about this connection with the NSA, of all people. It turns out Menzel was a world class cryptologist, also in secret. I found this material. I had to get permission from three different people to look at his files at Harvard. And so that was a real shocker. Here we have the top debunker who was trying to tell the Air Force he could explain all sightings. Don't worry about it. Leave it alone. I'll, I'll do it for you. Uh, And then we find out, after he was dead, that he was a member of the NSA and did all kinds of highly classified work for government agencies. So you start looking around then when you realize, hey, some of these guys had uh, a a big, deep background in highly classified stuff that we didn't know anything about. And then you also find evidence that they're... Making comments, uh, Phil Klass was attacking UFOs all the time. He was going to have a prosaic explanation for all cases. And I get a great laugh at my lectures when I show a copy of his check to me for $1,000 for proving him wrong about the Majestic 12 program uh, documents, the typeface. Now, here's the kicker. How could a guy who's smart, and Phil was smart, and worked for Aviation Week in Space Technology, Claimed that the NSC, National Security Council, used only elite type in their documents back in the 50s. How could he claim that when I found out later uh, he had never been to the Eisenhower Library? They have 250,000 pages of NSC documents. I found many examples of the same typeface. He was giving me $100 each up to a maximum of 10. Now, the ludicrousness of that claim, when he'd never even been to the library, never seen these documents, he'd gotten ten documents by mail. I don't know how many he got, but he showed ten that were done in the elite type. But that's typical of the mystery here. Why did these guys, Menzel I can understand, he was working under national security, Uh Dr. Edward U. Condon, we talk about at some length. How could he make such ludicrous statements? I mean, he was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He was president elected president of the American Physical Society, president of another big scientific organization. Uh, Kathy, you have got this down, Pat. What was his ridiculous statement about that uh, in
4: his his book on the on the Condon report? And he made the statement, quote, It is safe to assume that no intelligent life outside our solar system has any possibility of visiting Earth any time in the next 10,000 years.
3: Now, how could any scientist make such a stupid claim? We can't predict 100 years in advance, no less (laughs) 10,000. He knew better than that.
2: But it was almost like it was a cottage industry stand. You know, these people were just setting something up, and they were sort of like just watching the parade go by and commenting on it and doing everything they can do in their power to say, well, there's really nothing to it, but, you know, wink, 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 we all know there really is.
4: And we found that they were all connected to each other, and all of the information, the important information, was in the correspondence files uh, between the men who were cooperating in uh, disinforming the public about UFOs. Uh, They were collaborating together to uh, make sure that scientists did not take part in UFO conferences uh, or debates. They wanted it completely separated from uh, the scientific community. There had been a great deal of scientific interest in all of this up to that point but it became taboo and it remains taboo they were highly successful in the work that they did and what our book does is it shows the interwoven pattern of me- these men uh in their conversations the the way they went about disinforming the public and making sure that no federal funding was ever given again for the scientific study of UFOs.
0: All right, uh, Stanton and uh, Kathleen, thank you so much uh, for spending an hour with us. It goes by too quickly. I appreciate your time. Fact, fiction, and flying saucers. The truth behind the misinformation, distortion, and derision by debunkers, government agencies, and conspiracy con men. Thank you to you both. Thanks. Check our website. For having a fun. What? Uh, give us the website quickly.
3: Uh, StantonFriedman.com
4: And Kathleen-Martin.com
0: All right, thank you to you both. Victor Vigiani, thank you as always. Pleasure to be here. All right, my website, strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this program. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth.